You are listening to Rubber Manet, where words do remain. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast series Right the Wrongs. Every Wednesday and Saturday, Right the Wrongs raises public awareness on pressing human rights issues and creates an incubator of activism. On a summer day in 2008, a group of Afghan men called the police on a woman they suspect to be carrying a bomb under her burqa. A short time later, an FBI employee receives a phone call and crosses out the name of Afia Siddiqui. One of the seven most wanted Al-Qaeda fugitives is finally captured. Afia Siddiqui was born in Pakistan in 1972. Highly intelligent and academically gifted, she emigrated to the United States to pursue education at MIT and Brandeis University studying to become a neuroscientist. When she was 23, Siddiqui married Amjad Khan, with a ceremony for the arranged marriage taking place over a phone call. After the attacks of 9-11, she returned to her homeland, but only for a few months, going back to the US soon after. At that point, her professors and colleagues were already being questioned by the FBI. She first came under the radar for buying $10,000 worth of equipment, which included night vision goggles and body armor. In the eyes of the FBI, Siddiqui's active religious engagement did not help her case. And after that, the story unravels quickly. In February 2003, Afia married her second husband, an accused Al-Qaeda member and a nephew of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind behind 9-11. After the man mentioned her name to the FBI during his interrogations, on the 25th of March 2003, the FBI issued a global once-for-questioning alert for Siddiqui. She was also accused of being a courier of blood diamonds worth 19 million US dollars and acting as a financial fixer for Al-Qaeda. Five days later, on the 30th of March 2003, Afia Siddiqui disappeared with her three children when they were supposed to visit her family. The next time she was seen was half a decade later. No one can be really sure about Siddiqui's fate during these three years since all of the involved sides presented different stories. While both the Pakistani government and the FBI publicly denied any involvement in Siddiqui's disappearance, it didn't stop the accusations. According to the American government, the woman went into hiding with the extended family of her husband. Her ex-husband believed that version as well, saying that she went into hiding and worked for Al-Qaeda. An interesting point here is that Siddiqui confirmed this version in her statement to the FBI immediately after her arrest. Afterwards, she changed her mind and said she'd been abducted and imprisoned. This is the version that is promoted by the Pakistani government and Siddiqui supporters. They say that she was held as a ghost prisoner by the Americans. Six human rights groups, including Amnesty International, confirmed it as a possible scenario. One of the loudest arguments pointing to the suspicious behaviour of the US is that Siddiqui was never charged with terrorism. According to the Americans, when Siddiqui reappeared in Afghanistan, the bag she was carrying contained various chemical substances and documents on how to make explosives, chemical weapons, Ebola, etc. Documents in military bases and others. In the logic of Pakistan, if the FBI had proof that that was indeed what the woman was carrying, she could have easily been charged with terrorism. This inconsistency was widely discussed. However, the mysteries related to Afia Siddiqui do not stop with her disappearance. What happened the day following her arrest is not confirmed either. Two FBI agents, a US Army warrant officer, a US Army captain, and their US military interpreters arrived in Ghazni, Afghanistan, to interview Siddiqui. The events of that day are unclear, 
with three contrasting versions circulating in the press. According to the FBI, the American officials congregated in the interrogation room, and as they waited for Siddiqui to appear, one of the soldiers put down his rifle by his feet near a curtain hanging in the room. Then allegedly, Siddiqui, who was standing behind the curtain, seized the weapon and started threatening the men. She fired two shots and in the ensuing struggle and attempted to disarm her, Siddiqui was shot in the torso. An obvious question comes to mind. Would the trained soldier put away his rifle, knowing that he was about to face an Al-Qaeda terrorist? Here appears the alternative version, told by Siddiqui. When she stood up from behind the curtain to see who entered the room, one of the soldiers became startled and immediately started shooting. According to the Afghan police, a story which seems the most surprising, one of the American soldiers shot Siddiqui outside, having mistaken her for a suicide bomber. Regardless of which version is true, Siddiqui was brought to the US for her trial. She was charged with attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon, carrying and using a firearm, as well as assault. Regardless of which version is true, Siddiqui was brought to the US for her trial. She was charged with attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon, carrying and using a firearm, as well as assault. After a year and a half of psychological evaluations, during which psychologists claimed that she was faking the signs of depression and other mental issues, as well as faking having been subjected to torture, the trial began. After two weeks of proceedings and three days of deliberations by the judges, Afia Siddiqui was found guilty and sentenced to 86 years of imprisonment. The controversy sparked by Siddiqui's unclear affiliation with Al-Qaeda is not something new in the history of the US, especially after the 9-11 events. In an academic paper called Intersectionality in Muslim Women, Sahar Aziz, professor of law, argues that the American government has been consistently demonising Islam and labelling Muslims as terrorists. She explains that religiously driven racial discrimination has been actively implemented in order to, supposedly, protect the country. As if anything overtly Muslim was an indication of terrorism. Prevention laws somehow tend to adopt essentialist definitions of Muslims depicting them as prone to terrorism and legitimises harsh investigative and prosecutorial techniques against any suspected individual. The correlation of religiosity with violence reinforces stereotypes and potentially endangers an entire innocent population. Applying this to Afia Siddiqui's case, it becomes clear that the US might be accusing her for the wrong reasons, given the racist background it displays. Then again, it is not so surprising that she wasn't accused of terrorism for her acts five years prior, since she represents an immeasurable source of information for the American government. She could be used as an ally to reveal details about the terrorists she has supposedly worked in close contact with. Afia Siddiqui's case will remain a mystery for the time being. We will not know whether she was really affiliated with Al-Qaeda or held captive by American forces. That is the end of today's episode on Afia Siddiqui. In the description of this episode, you can find a link with the latest information on Siddiqui's life in prison. Feel free to engage with us on Facebook and Instagram and join us for further discussions on the Telegram group or drop us a comment at theverbamanicpodcast at gmail.com. This episode was written by Kaya and Dissis, recorded by Mason, produced by Marine, and brought to you by the Right the Wrongs under Verbamanant. The next episode of Right the Wrongs will air on Friday. You can find the program wherever you find your podcasts, bringing you detailed updates on pressing human rights issues. Till next time. Take care.